Our scripture reading this evening is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, beginning at verse 13 through 21. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Matthew 14, beginning at verse 13. Just prior to this story in verse 21, Jesus has heard the story that John the Baptist was beheaded and was killed in prison. And then we read, we continue with that uh, in verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened to John, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. When he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people, they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. The word of the Lord. And then I want to focus particularly on that idea of when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He saw and had compassion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the July issue of McLean's magazine caught my eye. And when I read this, then I said, I got to talk about this. I got to preach about all of this. For on the cover is a picture of the Prime Minister of New Zealand hugging someone in the aftermath of those horrific attacks on the Christchurch mosques that killed 51 and injured dozens. And the byline under the picture here reads, join the compassion revolution, or we're all doomed. It's quite the line. And inside the magazine is a six-page spread all about compassion and the hunger and the need for it in our world. The author, Anne Kingston, began the article, begins the article, by using the story of those back in February who vented about having had their sleep disturbed by an amber alert. People, you you remember the story, people called 911 to complain about about the alert. And not only did it happen in February, but a few months later it happened again. The first child, you may remember, was found murdered. The second was found with no issues. Kingston wrote, quote, the entire dust-up serves as a microcosm of a far bigger conflict now playing out. 
the urgent call for compassion as the last gasp remedy for systems on the brink. Politics, healthcare, civil society, and the planet itself. Example after example from politics, from business, from immigration, from the health field, among others, were given to show how the world is an increasingly non-compassionate place. If I were to take a survey among you, if I were to ask you to write on a piece of paper some of the things uh, that you think about in terms of non-compassion, I suspect we could come up with our own list of situations and examples of non-compassion. From budget cuts to selfies in front of some arrest or riot, from the public mockery of others to caged migrant children, from damning online responses to someone's point of view to endless demeaning tweets, from sexism to racism, you name it, you name it. And all of it leads to the question also asked by the McLean's article, how do we foster compassion within systems designed to reward those who aren't compassionate? Fascinating question. Seems to suggest that those who aren't compassionate are people that we like to have in power and people that we like to have, or that are people that are rewarded. So soon we're into another federal election. Actually, we're already into one, but how important will compassion be to us? What desire is there among the electorate for a compassionate approach toward others, toward the environment, toward life? It's interesting to note that from the article that there's a number of books being written about compassion. I didn't really know this, but we're learning. One, Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. difference. Scientific study that caring makes a difference. Second one, the power of kindness, why empathy is essential in everyday life, by Dr. Brian Goldman from Toronto. Then there's the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, published in 2017 as a collection of academic research on the topic, and so forth. And there's a number of others that are listed. The interest on the part of the society is great, apparently. And what's interesting in the article is that there is a nod in the midst of all that discussion about compassion to the world religions. But that's all it is, just a nod. I quote from the article. This is all it says. Quote, of course, the world's religions are underlined by human kindness or agape, Greek for love of mankind. Not quite sure they got the final definition right, since agape has always been understood as describing God's self-giving love for his people. Agape is self-giving love. But while the world may be, uh, while the world religions may be underlined by human kindness, those who ignore world religion, says the article, receive their sermons from TED Talks. They're not listening to Christian or other religious sermons. They're listening to TED Talks. And perhaps that says something about the increasing lack of impact of world religions, maybe the lack of impact of Christian faith. 
And indeed, there are times when I wonder if those who call themselves Christians or religious are not only ignoring the underlying principles of their faith, but also even ignoring TED Talks. Our own banner editors speak of the horrendous, vile backlash that they receive after writing an article or publishing, publishing on a theme of some sort. And some of the stuff that they receive is not to be mentioned in public. Some CRC social media forums are often compassionless places as people lash out at others or as decisions made by synod. And while kindness may be one of the fruits of the Spirit, the way in which the church sometimes deals with its people is anything but kind. Sometimes the way Christian and Christian leaders speak is anything but filled with compassion. Dr. James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, after visiting the southern U.S. border and seeing the lockups of refugees, wrote in his blog, quote, I have wondered with you, I guess that's with his readers, why the authorities don't just deny these refugees access to this nation. Can't we just send them back to their places of origin? And Relevant Magazine, a Christian magazine, reported on this, reporting on this story noted, quote, According to Dobson, the solution here is to send everyone back where they came from. The question of just what sort of terror and violence would inspire a family to uproot their lives and make the treacherous journey for the border does not, in, his, in this letter, occur to him. The question of whether or not sending these people for whom his heart breaks back to their homes could put any of them in very real fear for their lives isn't asked either. And later in the same blog, Dobson, who has such credentials in the Christian community, suggests that, quote, the time for our Christian nature of being generous and caring has come to a close, and it's time to deal with it, or else the inevitable consequences will happen. Wow. And there are many other examples one could give that come from religious world, from the religious world that would make one wonder whether or not we truly understand what the Bible teaches or not. Sometimes I suspect we need to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of another's, so to speak. So what does the Bible teach about compassion? And how do we foster compassion? Well, in the scripture passage we read this evening from Matthew 14, we get some clues from Jesus. Jesus was on the populated west side of the Sea of Galilee when he received word that his, that his cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist, had been beheaded by King Herod, the one who had proclaimed the gospel of repentance at the Jordan River and who had announced Jesus as the one who was coming was now dead. And such news made Jesus want to retreat for a while. He wanted to be alone with his Father in heaven, and so he sailed with his disciples across the northern parts of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore where it was quiet and where he could contemplate what had happened. But by this time in his ministry, Jesus had already gained quite the reputation in the land as a preacher and a healer, and people simply followed him wherever he went. It was hard for him to escape them. So when word got out that Jesus was going to the east side of the sea, the people didn't hesitate. 
And by the thousands, they traveled over the north shore of the Sea of Galilee to be with him. Nothing was going to stand in their way. They wanted to see the newest star in the land. And they brought their sick along with them, too. It must have been quite the journey and quite the, evidence, quite the effort for some of them. And when Jesus landed with the boat, or when he came out of the place where he had been alone, there's some difference of opinion as to exactly where Jesus came from. Anyway, when Jesus came out of the boat, when he landed, when he came there, the writer tells us Jesus saw them. He saw the large crowd of people, thousands of people, a multitude, a forest, as it were. And Matthew tells us in verse 21 that, this, that there were, in this case, 5,000 men besides women and children. And of course, every time we read these kind of passages, the question comes up, why did they count only the men? There's some possible explanations to that, so let me just give you a couple of them. For one, since the people had traveled a long distance to see Jesus, it was thought that perhaps the overwhelming majority of people before Jesus were men because the women, many of whom were saddled with child care, couldn't take on the journey for their children's sake. I don't know. That's a thought. It could also be that in a patriarchal society, as Israel was in those days, the women weren't considered important enough to be counted. Sorry, women. There were also those Jewish religious rules against women and children eating with men. Who knows what the reasons were that only the men were counted, but we ought to note that there were women and children present, and so the crowd was a whole lot larger than just 5,000 people. We should also note that the crowd that came to see Jesus was not accompanied by food trucks or caterers or picnic baskets. They just came, and they were in need, as we discover from what Jesus ended up doing. So there they were, thousands of people, and it's hard for us to perhaps imagine that, but thousands of people, and Jesus saw them. In both the stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, as recorded in Matthew 14 and 15, respectively, the word compassion then jumps out of the narrative. In our text, Matthew 14, verse 14, we read that Jesus, upon seeing the crowd, had compassion on them. In Matthew 15, 32, Jesus used the word himself and is quoted as saying to his disciples, I have compassion for these people. Jesus was obviously affected by the crowds of the people in a very special way, in a way in which he made it clear he wanted his disciples really to be affected too. And when Jesus saw the crowd, he didn't just see a mass of, in, of people, of humanity, the one indistinguishable from the next. No, Jesus saw people created in the image of God. He saw individuals, he saw people with hopes and dreams. He saw those who were tired from their long walk, those who in their haste had forgotten to bring along any food. He saw people with homes and jobs and children. He saw people with illness and problems. He saw frustrated fathers who hadn't been able to provide for their families because of poverty. He saw parents living with grief because of the loss of a child. He saw widows who were lonely and vulnerable. He saw those who were fearful about all sorts of things. 
He saw those who were spiritually defeated and exhausted. He saw before him sinners and those who were trapped in some sin and who, as a result, despaired of eternal life. He saw those with inferiority complexes and those who were conceited and self-righteous. What Jesus saw before him were men and women, boys and girls, in need of a Savior. They were like sheep without a shepherd, lost, blind, futureless, hopeless, vulnerable to sin and to the power of evil. Now remember where Jesus had come from. When he saw the crowd, he didn't say, ah, look, folks, like, really, give me a break. This is an inopportune time. Come on, my mind is filled with the news of the death of John. I've been so busy. Go home and leave me alone for a while. I need the rest. Please go away. Disciples, get rid of this crowd. Didn't say that. Like the Good Samaritan in the parable, Jesus welcomed them. He had compassion on them, or his heart went out to them. Or even more literally translated, the word compassion means to have the bowels yearning. Jesus felt for all of these people in front of him to the very core of his being, so much so that it hurt. Of course, he had come to earth for such a purpose, to save his people to preach good news to the poor. Jesus even said that, quoting Isaiah, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Because he had come for that, the Lord could not turn them away. He healed their sick, he fed them, he preached the gospel. The needs of those before him, the needs of the sick and the sad and the weary and the hungry and so on were much more important than his own needs. Of course, that's the way Jesus functioned in the whole of his ministry and time here on earth. He truly demonstrated God's self-giving agape love for his people. Jesus was filled with compassion. He who was rich and clothed with the splendor of heaven, became poor so that those who were poor might be rich in grace and in him. Oh, how great is the love of the Savior. The disciples, however, looked at all this quite differently. They were overwhelmed by the sheer size of the crowds. They didn't see individuals. They only saw a forest, an overwhelming forest and multitude, thousands of people who were posing what they thought was a real problem for the Lord Jesus. And so as evening approached, they urged Jesus, send the crowd away. Tell them to go so they can get food. But that was Jesus' approach. And he must have shocked the disciples when he told them that they ought to feed the crowd. Now you feed them. Right. With limited resources, five loaves and two fish, and with thousands of mouths to feed, the disciples didn't know where in the world to start. It was a logistical nightmare for them. And they were overwhelmed. What to do? Where do we start? Basically, I suspect the disciples were paralyzed at that point. 
And that's something that I suspect we can empathize with. When we look at the needs of the world, the thousands of refugees, the thousands of people who are hungry, the thousands of people with poor living conditions or no house at all and so forth, where in the world do we start? What are we to do? It's a well-known story, and it's often used to illustrate where to begin. You know this story very, very well. The tide had thrown thousands of starfish onto a beach. Unable to return to the ocean by themselves, there they lay dying. A young beachcomber comes along, saw their plight, began picking up the starfish one by one and threw them back into the water. One watching this, his seemingly futile efforts observed, there's thousands of starfish here. You can't possibly throw enough of them back to make a difference. Ignoring the criticism, the young beachcomber picked up another starfish and tossed it back into the waves. It made a difference to that one. It made a difference to the Kadani family. Jesus, send the people away. There's way too many of them. We cannot possibly feed them all. Send them away. But Jesus was not about to do what the disciples requested. He was not about to give up and send the people away to fend for themselves. He could not do that. Instead, he wanted his disciples to learn that the essence of discipleship and ministry, the essence of why he came in the first place, has to do with compassion. A deep yearning in the bowels, in the guts for those around us and for the multitudes of the world. Because it makes a difference to each one. And unless the disciples learn to see the trees for the forest or individual sheep from the flock, they're going to be ineffective in their ministry. Jesus said in John 16, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. The good shepherd knows each of his sheep by name. Each one is precious in his sight. And so he cares for them. He cares for you and for me, the poverty-stricken, frustrated father, the busy mother, the lonely widow, the person with a poor self-image, the person with sexual frustrations and identity issues, the sick, the depressed, the dying, the ones who struggle in school and the ones who don't, the weary and the questioning and so on, each person. And that's an awesome thing. He knows us all, and he calls us to himself. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick, says verse 14. He also said, they don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. These were people in need, and the Lord Jesus, filled with compassion, was going to help them, much to the consternation of the disciples. But help he did. And once it was all said and done, there was still plenty left over, such as the abundance of our God. But what's also interesting is that Jesus did not lay down all sorts of criteria that had to be met by the crowd before he helped. He didn't say they had to be members of a church or contributing to a budget someplace. He didn't ask any questions about their lifestyle or for that matter, whether or not they were Jews. No, he simply helped them because they were people who needed living bread. 
He helped them because they were image bearers of God, and it was for such as these that he had come in the first place. And it ought not to escape us that by doing this under such circumstances, Jesus was not only setting an example for his disciples, but he was teaching the entire church something about the kingdom of heaven. The Bible makes it quite clear that mercy and compassion are to be hallmarks of what it means to be a Christian. A characteristic of the kingdom is compassion. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful, said Jesus. The problems in this world can be so overwhelming, so massive, that we're often paralyzed like the disciples were when they were confronted with the huge crowd that came to hear Jesus. But when we see the crowd as Jesus saw the crowd, we're given some idea of how to respond. When we see people as people, as needy, as sheep without a shepherd, our approach may be somewhat different. We have to learn to see the trees for the forest. That's what the Lord Jesus did. He helped us in our need. Jesus saw through the crowd and he died for you and for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the Bible tells us. And now we're called upon in response to be neighbors to others who are in need. Don't walk by on the other side of the road because you don't want to get involved. Just imagine if Jesus had done that to us, we wouldn't have been one of his children. But he didn't. He stopped. And he gave his life for us. James Dottie, founder of the Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Can you imagine? That's actually an outfit. Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education is quoted as saying rather bluntly in this article too, Compassion is going to save our species. For our species to survive, we have to recognize we are all one, and everyone deserves the right to dignity, the right to food, the right to security, to shelter, and to health care. And until we go on a path toward that worldview, we are doomed. Compassion is going to save our species. It's quite the statement. In some way, it echoes the gospel. Compassion is going to save our species indeed. Jesus' compassion for a lost people and a lost world. But as his children, our response can be no less. Amen. Father in heaven, we hear about a compassionless world. And many of us can come up with examples of that from the news and maybe from our own lives and from the kinds of things that we read and see around us. But we as citizens of the kingdom are to be a people filled with compassion because you were compassionate to us in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that we may respond appropriately and that we may live in compassion, that our guts may yearn for those around us. And as we think about the future, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would save us 
not we know that we're not saved through our own compassion, but ultimately through the Christ's compassion, your compassion for us. Thank you, Lord, for the great gift of salvation. And when there are needs in this world, we pray that we may reach out and that we may help and that we may do our part for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the future of the world. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. Watch over us as we go from this place. And thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that can ever separate us from your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.